All right, as our custom, let's stand up and read the scriptures. So, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written you to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you again in prayer, just like we did after communion, just to acknowledge that we are here to learn from you, to grow in relationship with you. We're not here just to listen to the scriptures. We're here to listen so that our minds are changed so that we'll apply them. Uh, we want to be uh, people that are doers of the word and just not hearers of the word. And we uh, want that not only to please you, but just to be a light to the community of Okotoks. Uh, I pray, Lord, that in, starting in 2019, that uh, we may bridge the gap between some of the non-Christians in the community and that they would come to Christ uh, through our relationships and the things they see in our lives that they would want to have because of the, the grace you've done in us and given us. So we just uh, look forward to our time and uh, really pray that you're, we be open to your spirit and the truth contained in scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today is a pretty monumental day for us, just because after today's sermon, we'll have completed another book in the Bible. Over five years, we've done Exodus, uh, J John, and now First Peter. And in the new year, it's most likely we're going to do the second book of Peter as our next book. But today's topic, as we finish off the letter, is about how Satan basically operates and his designs for humanity and the world and how we as Christians are to combat against his schemes. And that's going to be the primary focus of today's message, which is kind of an interesting timing, coming to Christmas, nice way to end off the Christmas season here, talking about Satan and uh, how, how kind of a critter he is. So, uh, but anyway, it's important that we understand how he operates because uh, our fight against him is daily. There's not one single day that you don't have to fight against his tactics and his schemes. And after we learn today's scriptures and go through the passage, you'll probably see exactly why that is. If you haven't known that and figured that out from experience already. But notice, in, uh, we'll begin in verse 6. Notice that Peter begins with a therefore. What Peter's doing here is connecting this new section in new, verse 6 onwards with, his, with something he'd previously taught in verse 5. Now, if you remember from last week's sermon, his main point from that verse was that there were two key virtues he wanted to see expressed in the church. The first one was that of submission, especially younger men towards the elders. And the second was that of humility, a virtue Peter wanted all members of the church congregation to adopt in terms of the relationship to one another. And Peter says, he's so bold to say that if these character traits are not present, in a, in, a, in a church, these actually give evidence to pride in a church. And this is something that Peter makes clear that God is extremely opposed to in verse 5. Well, if humility is something that Peter recognized God would want to see in the community of believers, it would then make sense that humility would be something he'd also want shown and expressed towards him as God as well. And so Peter therefore writes, in verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, humility in general, whether it be amongst people 
or before God is not always the easiest virtue for you and I to live out. Uh, it requires us to put our personal rights and agendas aside in order to serve and demonstrate love for another person. And that's scary to us. Because what we want is that we want our voice to be heard. We want to be noticed. If we, we don't want to feel injustice without it being made known. But humility doesn't guarantee that your rights will be ever met. If you're humble, doesn't mean your rights doesn't mean that you're ever going to, to potentially have resolution. But Peter assures us here, if we do, if we humble ourselves before God, that won't be the case. There will be resolution, which comes with a promise. He says there, if you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you. He will exalt you, but at the proper time. Now, the Greek word for exalt, this is nothing impressive, because you'd figure this out on your own without the Greek word. It's just to lift, lift or raise up. To lift someone up or to raise someone up. So God promises to lift us up or raise us up out of suffering and trials and hardships. The trouble with this verse is that there are no specifics given here as the type of exaltation we're to receive or the timing that this is to occur. The only promise here is if we do humble ourselves before God, He does pro promise us deliverance. deliverance. So it's best to understand these verses, I think, in a general way. And I, I think Wayne Grudem actually does a good job of explaining this. So, so I just quoted him directly. He says here, here's what he thinks this verse 6 means. That in the time that God deems best, whether in this life or the life to come, He may lift you up from your humble conditions and exalt you in the way that seems best to Him. I think he, that's a very good way of understanding this. And because we know in verse 7, we have a God that cares for us, that means that we just need to trust Him in His wisdom that He also knows what's best for us. And sometimes exaltation and being lifted out of trials um, may come in this lifetime. It may not. It may come in glory. But we have to trust Him that He knows what's best for our character, for His kingdom, and how He wants to use us in that. Even if that means that we might have to face a personal disadvantage in this lifetime in order for something greater to happen for His kingdom's purposes. So as a Christian then, we have this powerful dichotomy going on. Because on one side we have this spiritual being, this loving Heavenly Father who cares for us, and who one day promises to exalt us in His timing. But on the other side, you have another spiritual being who seeks to tear you down and destroy you. And we're going to get in now to the meat and potatoes of the sermon in terms of the focus of today's message. And this is Satan's um, role in the believer's life. We'll pick this up in verse 8. He says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to discuss a couple of things here about Satan and how he works, but the first thing I want to talk to you about is this idea of what is Satan's ultimate goal for humanity? What's his number one agenda? Well, he uses the word, he's a, he prowls around. We know that lions and animals, when they prowl, or even a burglar, it's done sneakily, it's done like a, so that no, no, there's nothing take, no one will take notice of you, right? But the key word here is he looks to de devour somebody. How does he devour someone? What's, what's the number one agenda? Well, the word for uh, devour is to swallow up, to swallow up, um, or like gobble down, basically. Well, the way Satan does this is primarily in the spiritual realm. His ultimate goal is to bring spiritual death and destruction to every single person alive, including the Christian. His goal is to sever any existing or potential relationship a person may have with God. There are several passages I could have chosen to demonstrate this, but I chose just one. And we're going to pick this up in John chapter 8. And this is a, a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees about his identity as the Messiah and about whose truth is correct, his or the Pharisees. And this is what Jesus says in 844 about the Pharisees. Um, he says, you are of your father, the devil, 
and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. What's interesting about this passage is that Satan, you, there's, there's no record in the scriptures of Satan actually physically killing anybody. Can you think of a passage where Satan like, just takes someone's life on his terms? doesn't exist. Yet Jesus calls him a murderer. So in what category could be a murderer then? Well, he says here in the context, because he does not stand in the truth. If, you, if he doesn't stand in the truth and he's, all he does is tell lies, then if he gets you to believe the lies of the devil, like lies, his lies, then he ultimately murders you because he takes your life spiritually. Because if you believe the lies of the devil, you won't be connected to God and you'll never know him and you will not have eternal life in the spiritual realm. So his goal ultimately is to bring spiritual death. And John 8.44 highlights this. But this becomes even more apparent in verse 51. Because Jesus gets into a debate, uh, a debate between the Pharisees about who's true, whose words are true, like theirs or his. And, and is Jesus like telling lies or is he not? And look at what Jesus says in 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, this is, you know, seven verses after this conversation in the context of being a murderer. Well, what do you mean you'll never see death? Anybody in here, if you keep Jesus' word, are you not going to physically die? Of course not. You're all going to die physically, even if you keep his word. But he's saying you'll never see death. So Jesus understands this conversation to be in the spiritual realm. And that's very important to see that, because that's Satan's ultimate goal. He's a murderer, but he wants to kill you in the spiritual sense. And it might involve taking your life early, like in a physical way, like setting the table for you to do that. But ultimately, it's because he wants your spiritual life to end and come to ruin. So we know his clear agenda. We know his purpose. He wants to separate you from God. So how does he go about doing it? Well, I want to first tell you how he doesn't do it (laughs) and what he doesn't do and what he can't do. Satan can't physically enter your mind so as to control your thought life. He can't get in your head internally and control your thought life. The only exception, and hear me clearly, the only exception is demon possession. If you mess around with witchcraft and invite him into your life, once he indwells you because of your giving him permission to come in, now he can control your thought life. But I'm talking about the, the general Christian community, the general norm. He doesn't come into your mind and internally dwell there. He doesn't have the power to overtake it and control your thought life. If he had that kind of freedom to do it, imagine the chaos that would occur. If he fully had access to your mind in the way he would desire, how much chaos there would be in your own life, um, in the life of like our church and even in your family and the community. Now, why do I think it's important to say this? Because this is not a commonly shared belief amongst Christians. Many, many Christians out there, and they're legitimate Christians, but they believe, like they have these kind of casting out ministries, and they believe that, you, that Satan controls your thoughts, and you have to cast them out in the name of Jesus. And you might think, well, maybe, maybe not, you know, I don't know about that. But listen, like Dan Jansen told me, And yeah, he gave gave me permission to tell the story. When he was in seminary, he was part of this ministry. You know how strong Dan is in the Word of God and how much you respect him? He he started laughing at himself about what it was like for him during his Bible years. Like, this is going back 30 years ago, mind you. But he used to be part of these prayer groups. And before they'd start, all the guys would get around and they would basically say things like this. And I quote from Dan, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You have no place in here in this meeting. And they'd cast him out of the room. They do things like that. Do you remember the clip in... Have you ever seen the movie War Room? War Room? It's a great, great movie. I love the movie. I think it's a fantastic movie. There's a scene in there where this, the woman, the main actor, actually casts out Satan out of the house because marriage isn't going well. And I actually have a clip for you. And uh, hopefully this will play. My, my, I would normally get Kevin to do this for me, but I just thought of this at 9 o'clock this morning. And so I didn't have time to, to edit it. 
that this is, this is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, this is common belief. You know, we, we watch this movie. It's very powerful when you watch that scene. I mean, but the music is actually adding the drama. You take the music away, you'd think, what in the world are you doing? At least I think that, right? It's the music. Yeah, but, but, but again, no, not making fun of anyone, but Dan Jansen belonged to it like that. That's what he did in university before prayer meetings and stuff like that. Now, you might still be, might be a little bit confusing what I'm saying here. So let me clarify a couple things just so I don't get misunderstood. I'm just going to bring this back now to the sermon. Alright. But we're, again, what we're saying here is that he doesn't have the power to enter into your mind and, or, or come into your house and control everything that's going on there. He does have power and he does have influence, and we're going to discuss how he does that, but not in these ways. Not in these ways. The key in her first comment when she goes, Devil, I don't know if you can hear me, but... Okay, so what if he's not... So, so he's not omnipresent, right? So he probably wasn't there. If, if that was a real story, he probably isn't in her house. So she makes this huge rant, but she says, If you can hear me, I want to tell you this. But he's not there. So what are you doing then by saying all this stuff? Right? But again, the music and the emotions of it all play, play onto it. The devil is affecting her marriage, is affecting their family's life, but in a different way than she thinks. And we're going to discuss those things. But two important texts in the Bible demonstrate this. Really important texts, where the devil had major influence in someone's life. And the first one is in Job. Remember in Job, devil comes to Satan, or devil, devil comes to, uh, to God, and he says... Uh, uh, basically, he wants to get a hold of Job's life because he's prowling around and looking for someone to devour. And he comes and he says, God, I want Job. And Job says, oh, God says, okay, you can have him. What does Satan do next? You can go look at this later on in chapter 2. He does not enter Job's mind and start controlling his behaviors. How does he go after Job? He starts going after him externally. External outside factors coming to affect his life. And through that, through those external factors, Job's life gets affected, which then would play on his mind. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, he got sick, and all these types of things. Those things start playing mind games, and his friends come along and try to help him through this. And of course, his friends were of no help, because they were affecting his mind in the wrong way. And what is God's uh, assessment of Job at the end of the whole thing? He never sinned. He never sinned. As he was going through the whole thing and processing everything, because he, he never rejected God and blamed God for anything in the whole, in the whole process. But J Satan, when, when given permission to attack him, did not go into his thought life in, in an eternal way. And again, the, uh, the exception is always demon possession. But you've invited him in. But he can't just come into your life and create havoc. So you can't cast somebody out who's never been invited in. And all the casting of demons in the New Testament, they're all demonic possessions. When people cast out, it's all demonic possessions. It's not circumstantially bad things going on in someone's life. 
Another key text is Matthew 16, 22, 23, because this is Peter's theology on Satan, how he works, and he's the one who wrote 1 Peter. Peter took, oh, this is, uh, Jesus has just been declared the Christ by, by, um, by uh, Peter, because he says, who do you think I am, and who do people say I am, and Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you got that right, but flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. And then he says, and I'm going to suffer as the Christ. I'm going to suffer as the Christ. And Peter says this. He takes him aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And so Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So why is Peter called satanic here? How has Satan influenced him? He hasn't possessed his mind and made him control his thought life. By the fact that he is aligned with, 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 aligned with the, the world's standards of thinking and aligned with human thinking and not God's thinking, he's been called satanic. Because what's the lie here? If Jesus doesn't go to the cross the way Peter wants him not to go, like Peter doesn't want him to die, then, then he's aligning himself with Satan because sin's never defeated. And so Satan has ultimate victory. So if Peter gets his way with a description of the Messiah that he wants, then Satan wins. And so God, Jesus says, your understanding of the Messiah and why I've come is not good. You're thinking like the devil. But again, he's aligned himself with worldly thoughts, with man's thoughts, and therefore he's called satanic. He's been influenced by the world's thinking, but he's not been actually possessed by the devil himself. And so he's called satanic for doing this. And this is really important. So he can control, he can influence your thought life, but he can't control your thought life. So how does he operate then? How does he operate? The first one is actually to the spreading of lies. This is Jesus' description of him. He says, whenever he, Satan, uh, he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You remember... Uh, in uh, to Eve, you know, you won't die. If you eat this fruit, you won't die. God knows he just doesn't want you to be like him. And what happens? She ultimately dies spiritually. And God has to redeem Adam and Eve through the animal sacrifice in the garden as, well as, a, as a picture of what Jesus is going to do. Without God intervening, they would have spiritually died. There's lies like this. Uh, uh, there's multiple pathways to God. Right? Or there is no God. Or you can be God. These are all lies. Other ways, though, that, you can, that he spreads lies is that we don't have the need as believers to be forgiving. Holding on to unforgiveness is a lie of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. This is Paul. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of, of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul's forgiven someone. He's encouraging the church to do the same. And he says this, If we don't, we're going to give Satan an advantage. An advantage. Very, very powerful. That's a lie. If you don't think you should, for, if you if you hold on to unforgiveness, it's a lie of the devil, and he calls it schemes here. It's, it's the way because he he knows what will ultimately happen. You remember the passage after the uh, the Lord's prayer? We always read the Lord's prayer and stop at the next two verses. After the Lord's prayer, he says this: If you don't forgive others, neither will God forgive you. Right after the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts for you know all that that, that whole that whole thing. Yeah, if you do not forgive others, then the Lord will not forgive you. And again, this is really important. It's a scheme. He wants us to hold on to unforgiveness. So I just want to talk about evidence of how do you know when someone's unforgiving? These are some telltale signs. This is telltale signs that you have unforgiveness in your life or I have unforgiveness in my life. And this is, this is really important for us to do a self-assessment of unforgiveness. When you're unforgiving, you're often highly judgmental. Highly judgmental of others. Very sensitive and very quick to get angry. 
type of person the glass is always half empty. You speak about people with condemnation and not hope. So you often label people like they're, they're always this or you're always that as opposed to that person could be like this and could, you know, there could be change for that person. Another one is uh, you always bring up the past. So when for, right, forgiveness, like, so you're getting, you get in an argument and you bring up everything in the past that happened before. See about Jesus with us, when he, when he, the forgiveness he received, he deals with us at the initial stages of what we, we needed forgiveness for. But when we sin now, he doesn't go all the way back to before the cross to, help, to, to bring up the past with us. He only deals with the sin that we've done now. But he doesn't heap condemnation on us and bring up the past. So again, these are good, these are good checkpoints. We, we can often be highly judgmental, extremely sensitive, quick to anger, glass always half empty. We speak about people with condemnation. We don't talk about them as being hopeful in God's eyes when we bring up the past. These are all signs of unforgiveness. And if that's in our lives, that's the devil has got a hold of us and he's trying to destroy us in the spiritual life. Another one. Another one, I'll go back to here actually. Unresolved anger, Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Why would going to bed angry and not unresolving conflict give the devil an opportunity? I actually think it has to do with forgiveness. Because if you're anger, angry and you've been hurt and there's been no, no resolution, you bring that to bed. And so when you wake up in the morning, it's still there and it's festering and it's bitter. And so it, over time, it creates unforgiveness if it's not dealt with. Because as soon as you resolve an, anger and, and you get, and you have a, even if it's like, a, even if the conflict in the time might be not pleasurable and kind of ugly, at least when it's all said and done, you can move forward. But going to bed angry gives the devil an opportunity, and I think it's because it leads to unforgiveness. Another one, withholding of sex in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's lots to say on that, but I'll just leave it at that. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. And if you want to know more, I talked about it in my sermon series on marriage and divorce. And, and I went more detail in 1 Corinthians 7. But these passages are powerful because it says that all of them, Satan, don't let Satan take advantage of you. Don't let Satan give you an opportunity. Don't let him tempt you. All these things. He's, the Satan is, is, is influencing you. If you adopt these beliefs, I, can't, I, should, I need to keep on hold of my anger to like make people pay. Or I shouldn't forgive them because they don't deserve it. Or I'm, uh, you know, I don't want to like, be with my partner you know, for whatever reasons. These kind of things are breeding grounds that Satan loves. And he's applauding us as believers when we adopt these things. Another category of his lies or his, uh, his weapons against us outside of spreading lies is persecution. Persecution. The, um, in this context, these believers weren't physically getting persecuted, like in terms of being martyred. They weren't being martyred. But they were being verbally abused. They were being threatened. They were being intimidated. And so on and so forth. And reviled and slandered. And these kind of things can wear a person down. Right? But at the extreme end, the extreme end is the physical violence and the physical persecution. And just in the category of being threatened and intimidated, because that's what I like about threatened and intimidated, which is what these believers in First Peter are. Peter knows all first, uh, firsthand how powerful those threats and intimidations can be for denying Jesus Christ. Remember his own life? Jesus said, you will, you will uh, deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he says, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. And you know the rest of the story. What happened? His life was never threatened. In terms of like, they never ever said to Peter, we're going to execute you now and martyr you. They just said, do you know him? But because they watched what he did to Jesus, he presumed because he was a follower, he was going to be next in line. And Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. He was just getting like, physically like, like spat upon and things like that and, and on trial. But again, the point being, Peter was, could see the potential for threats and intimidation. And it freaked him out. And he denied the Lord. 
in those ways. More on him in a second and what the rest of the story on that. But look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. This is, a church, this is a church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about <laughs> to cast some of you into prison. There's the whole devil again at work. So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who was in the air, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. To, or sorry, what the Spirit says to the churches. Now watch this. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death in the Bible? The first death is physical. The second death is spiritual. He's talking to a Christian church who are already believers. And he says this, if you overcome the persecution and don't shrink away and deny the Lord, you will have the right to enter into glory. In other words, if you don't, in other words, there's a potential for you to fall away from, your, from the living God because of the temptation of persecution. And again, this is really important because uh, even though they haven't been, um, these guys have been thrown in jail, right? And it may, may lead to death. It's hard to know exactly. We don't have any record, at least I don't, of what, what happened to these people here. But again, it's a very realistic possibility. Peter knew that possibility. He experienced it in his own life. These, this is why he's writing to these churches saying, be careful for the devil and his schemes. Persecution's a very real one. Finally, another, another one is the lusts of the world. What are his weapons? The lusts of the world. Let's look at 1 John 2, 15 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful part of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 5, 19 says that the, the, power, the world is in the power of the evil one, Satan. So the world in, in 5.19 is linked to chapter 2, 15 and 16. So how does he do this? Well, lust of the flesh. Here's Satan's, here's Satan's lie, Satan's goal, his tactic. Your physical body, like everything, all your desires, you, I know you want something, so you just go after anything you crave and you can have it. There's no limits to what your flesh wants, and you can have it. Sex, you can have it. Money, you can, you can strive after it. Food, go for it. There's no limits. You can eat, drink, have sex. If you want an escape from life, go take drugs. Man, you deserve it. Get some stress off. Go for it. Anything you want, you can have. How about the eyes? Lust of the eyes. Anything you see, Anything you see and want, you can have it. There's no limits. Right? And everywhere you go, you know this, especially Christmas time, you're going to the stores, everything you see that you want, basically Satan makes you think, you're missing out. You're missing out big time. Man, life could be so much better if you just had these things. You need these things to be happy. And so you, you deserve it, so you go after it. How about pride? The pride of life. The lie is this, I'm the stuff, I'm the big kahuna, it's all about me, how people view me, what people think of me, it's all about my rights and what I get and the justice that I see in my life and so on and so forth. It's all about pride, it's all about me, I'm the goods. You know what's very interesting about these three areas? It's a really fascinating study. Do you know that these, these same three temptations that Peter, or sorry, John here is writing about, were the same temptations that the devil went after Jesus with in the, in the 40 days in the wilderness? Okay, let's think this through now. Lust of the flesh. Jesus, you're hungry, aren't you? Super hungry. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It's been a very long time. Turn these stones into bread. You can eat whatever, you can, all you can eat. Lust of the flesh. How about lust of the eyes? Satan took him to a high mountain to show him all the kingdoms in the world. Let him see everything. He says, if you worship and bow down to me, I will give you everything here. <laughs> and pride. 
He took him to the top of the temple and says, If you're really the Son of God, throw yourself off of here. Prove it. Show me. Show me you're the stuff. Show me you're the big kahuna. Right? Same temptations with Jesus. If Satan goes after Jesus, the Son of God, that he spent time in heaven with before the fall, like in Adam, with Adam and Eve, if he spent time with him in heaven, and he came after him while he was on earth, why would you and I be any different in how we go after us? The same three temptations you and I face every day, same temptations he went after Jesus Christ. Very, very interesting uh, passage. So Satan has a large arsenal of tactics to separate us from God. He's clever. He's been watching us for thousands of years. He knows the things we struggle with, how to heighten the faculties of our sinful desires to get us to abandon God in His ways. The battle is all for our mind and the way we think. He wants to influence us in these ways, not control us, get in our head and control us. He sets up the world to influence us and makes us want to adopt His way of life. So since the battle with Satan is the battle over the mind, it's not a coincidence then that Peter's instruction for us has to do with how we use our minds in response to him. Look at verse 6. Sorry, verse 8. He gives us a first command is to be sober in spirit and be on alert. What's that have to do with? Our mind. Our mind. We've already seen what it means to be sober in spirit. It's occurred twice in this book already. So let me just remind you. It's the Greek word to be vigilant. To be vigilant. Uh, or not intoxicated. Um, now, in the, in the context here, it's, the word vigilance means to be careful and cautious and on guard. So, and being alert is, uh, of course, being like, you know, like having your ears up and ready for, for anything that could come your way. So the, the idea here is you're not to be, you're to be attentive, but not in a frenzy and panic, right? So the idea with being sober in spirit and alert is that our minds are to be under control, or in control. So how would this apply to us? Well, the first one I think is really, it would be this, like, it's important that you and I take a personal inventory of the areas we can easily succumb to. What areas of weakness do you find in your lives that you're constantly battling and struggling with? What are you prone to temptation in over and over? I know some of you guys, like especially the men, like in talking to you, you, some of you struggle in areas that I don't. But some, I struggle in areas that you don't. Satan is the master at setting the table for you and I to be influenced in those weaknesses. He doesn't come after me in areas that he comes after you because we don't have the same weaknesses. So part of being vigilant and attentive, if he's prowling around, I need to know what I'm dealing with so that I, in my own life, so that I know what he's going to try to attack me in. So that's part of being sober and vigilant. Second thing is that part of being sober is not blaming Satan for absolutely everything that goes wrong in your life. <laughs> Back to the, kind of like the movie clips, right? He's not omnipresent. He's not, in other words, there's like the world's a big place. There's only one devil. He can only be at one place at one time. Yes, he's got min, like minions and demons that, can, that are territorial, but he, like, and I get that, but they can't be everywhere at all time. Secondly, he's not omniscient. He can't read your mind. Like Satan doesn't know what I'm thinking right now. He has no idea what I'm thinking right now. God knows, but he doesn't. But he knows from watching me what I'm prone to, and so therefore he can set the table in my life so I can fall to those things. I mean, I've heard it's, a, it's theologically impossible, and it, but it's a, it's a joke. But I've, I heard this said to me years ago. Uh, Satan's on the corner of a street corner at a set of lights, and he's sitting on the pavement, and he's bawling his eyes out with his, head, his hands between his head, or his head between his hands. And he's crying, and this Christian walks up to him and goes, Hey, Satan, like, what's the matter? He goes, Oh, you damn Christians, you blame me for everything. Right? I mean, it's a joke, but that, that is, that's, what, that's not being sober. That's not being sober. That's, that's basically, uh, because sober is to be cautious and alert, but not attributing everything that goes wrong in our lives to Him. Some things just happen that are not good. And it's just a, it's just a result of living in this world. 
Like if I get in a car accident, it doesn't mean Satan caused it. It might have been just slippery roads. Um, if I have a backache, it might, Satan didn't necessarily cause it. It might be because I lifted something heavy and awkwardly and so on and so forth. So I can't rebuke the devil for everything that bad happens in my life. At the same time, we can't go to the other extreme and say he's got no power at all. Because clearly here he's saying be sober in spirit and be an alert because he is prowling around seeking to devour you. So there's a way to handle, handle him here. There's a healthy balance as Christians. Finally, the instruction though is to be, resist him firmly in verse 9. It says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. How do we resist the devil? Again, Peter doesn't tell us, so we have to go to other scripture to figure this out. I'd suggest three ways. One, through prayer. Through prayer. Let's go back to the story of Peter in the, about denying Christ three times and Jesus' prediction of that. Do you remember what Jesus says to him in Luke 22, 31? He goes, you will deny me, you will deny me, but, he says, I have prayed for you, I have, I have prayed for you. Oh yeah, he says, he says, Satan has asked if he could sift you out like wheat. He's asked for permission to sift you out like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Prayer was Jesus' key for Peter to rebound after that denial. So we can pray, and uh, for uh, that's a way of resisting him firm in our faith. Second one, the community of believers. That's this church on a Sunday morning. This is kind of similar to Roger's sermon on the Sabbath. You know, you can listen to that. You know, why, what's the purpose of community of believers? Why is it important? Well, again, it's really important because of, of um, if it's a battle for the mind... If it's a battle for the mind, where do you get the truth of God proclaimed the most consistently and strongly? In the house of God. In the house of God. Hebrews 10, 24. Stim- we have to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now think about this. That's the purpose of assembling together, by the way. If Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, which is what he is in the Bible, he's the accuser of the brethren. If that's what he is, when you're out in the world, you're going to continue to hear those messages. When you come into the church, I never, I never or we, to, to, or, uh, accuse you of, uh, or condemn you of these things, of things in your lives that, are, that you believe are lies. I proclaim truth, and the truth just sort of falls where it may. But you don't get accused of anything in here. There's words of, like, there might be convictions, but that's not, that's not the same as uh, accusations. Second, and most of the time, though, it's a word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement. You, hopefully, when you walk out of here, you have a stronger resolve to love God and, love and, and follow His ways when you walk out of this church. So again, the community of believers is key because wherever you give your airtime to is where your mind's going to think. So church is really important because if you're not here regularly, then you are going to, if you have lies going on in your head that you believe, they're going to continue on throughout the weeks, and you need to hear truth to get out of it. In other places that can happen, of course, is like Bible studies and, and regular fellowship uh, with other Christian people. It's like a descending pyramid. Like, it's like you know, church probably is like the biggest one, and then it kind of gets into small groups and other, other communities of fellowship and whatnot. Finally, the last one would be the Word of God. The Word of God. Remember in, when Jesus was tempted by devil and he quoted scripture falsely? What was Jesus' response? Scripture in context. Scripture in context. And there's so many other passages that talk about the importance of the Word of God in, in the Bible. I'm, I mean, you, you, you know them. I'm, I'm not going to have to, I don't have to prove this to you <laughs> that the Word of God is vital in fighting, fighting this battle. But Jesus quoted scripture in context to deal with the devil. So the question then for us is this, if the battles for the mind and for influence in our lives to set the table for us to behave in certain ways, where are you and I giving our airtime? Where is most of our airtime going? Because this is how, wherever the answer is to that, I can promise you that's how you're, that's how you're thinking and how you're going to be primarily living. The more airtime we give to the Word of God, the more sober and firm in our faith we will have, or we will be to stand against the devil. 
So battling the devil can be often tiresome, but there's a promise given for such diligence in verse 10. It says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, this, this verse is kind of ambiguous a little bit, like, like verse 6, because there's no specifics given as to the time when God will confirm and perfect and establish us. But I would suggest that probably what he has in mind here is heaven. You know, probably based on the, the, the verses, he's probably thinking, you know, because definitely in heaven, when we go to eternity, this suffering, which seems like an eternity for us at times, is actually only for a little while in God's economy, right? Eternity versus 70, 80, 90 years of life, it's, it's just a little while in God's thinking. But again, there's, I think the key, the key to this verse really is, this is what, I think this is what Peter's really saying. That any loss that we suffer in this life, lifetime for the sake of Christ will be made right. Any loss that we suffer for following Jesus Christ and the hardships we go, the battle against the devil, all of that will be made right. And we can trust in that and trust in Him. I have completed my notes, but I did have one last thing I wanted to tell you, um, which I think is very important. And I'll finish with this. I'm going to read from. I'm going to read from you how to use the Word of God in a fight against the devil in a, in a practical way. I'm going to show you how to do this to gain victory over him. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians 10:3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. In this verse, there's three-step process to defeating the, Bible, the devil with, with the Word of God. Number one. We are reminded in verses 3 and 4 that we are in a spiritual warfare. Though we walk in the flesh, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This is a, this is a, a spiritual battle that we're in, recognizing that as number one. Number two, we are to bring our thoughts captive. Bring our thoughts captive. How, what does that mean? That means it's an act of the will. If you have a bombarding thought, a lie from the devil, you have, to, you have to put up resistance against that, which means you have a choice to make. You can believe the lie or do something about it. So you take your thoughts captive, which is an act of the will. But again, this is we're back to being sober. You have to know your weaknesses and what you're prone to in, in your regular thought life to understand what the lie is. So that when it comes into your brain, you can recognize it and then do something about it. Number three, though, you're then to take it Take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So you can yield to Satan, or you can yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a choice. It's your free will. Your free will. So one, how to, how to use the Word of God as a weapon. You remember you're in a spiritual battle. Two, you bring your thoughts captive, which is an act of the will. And three, you, to the obedience of the Lord, you have the choice of who you're going to yield to. I'm going to finish by reading this to you. This is a true story about a man who had to put this into practice in his own life. An apprehensive clergyman came for therapy. He was hearing voices. He wasn't sure as to whether they were actual voices or clear and commanding thoughts, hallucinations or obsessions. He saw nothing associated with the voices, but he couldn't get rid of the bombarding commandment or commands. He was terrified. The bombarding command was curse the spirit curse the Spirit, repeated over and over again in his mind. Remember, he's a pastor, leading a church, and the commanding voice is, curse the Spirit. <laughs> nice, nice, uh, nice repeated thought. Here's how he put the three principles that I just spoke about into practice. 
I gave him uh, this verse, which expressed the exact opposite of his thought and action. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, and forget all, not all his benefits. So curse the spirit, bless the Lord. Opposition, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. He was immediately to repeat this Bible verse every time the unwanted command entered his mind. I assured him that if he did it faithfully, he would uh, soon detect the strange feeling he would experience just before the unwanted thought bombarded him. His sensitivity to the preceding experience would be increased. He could then repeat that verse and others like it before the unwanted command entered his mind. The total response pattern of his brain would enhance his heartfelt praise in the spirit of worship of his God. It would place him within God's army in the spiritual warfare. I asked him to review the entire 103rd Psalm where these verses are found. This would increase his sensitivity to God's many blessings. It would increase his spontaneity to praise and bless the Lord. This affirmed and increased his gratitude for God's blessings. It restored him to a very personal relationship with God. The Bible promises the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In a matter of hours, the bombarding ceased. His anxiety disappeared. He, his countenance brightened. His wife shared her immense relief and joy over the change that had come over him. And after a few days of re reinforcing therapy along the same line, he was no longer in need of therapy sessions with me. Nothing, this is back to Elizabeth's comment last week. It's funny, the timing. Nothing tends to, be more, to promote health of body and soul than does a spirit of gratitude and praise. <laughs> It is a law of nature that our thoughts and feelings are encouraged and strengthened when we express them. There is healing to be found also in the numerous promises made by God and recorded in the Bible. Let's get acquainted with them, many of them as we can. Application of the Word of God fighting, resisting the devil and his lies. Please, church, if you know your lies and the bombarding thoughts, get scriptures in place that fight those lies and speak them out loud to yourself on a regular basis. Hang them on your fridge, put them above the toilet, put them near the shower, whatever, and repeat them every day and there will be healing. There'll be healing in your life from the anxiety, depression, fears, anxieties, whatever you're facing, I can promise you, standing on the Word of God is truth. Amen. I'm going to just blast through these because I've gone long enough. I wasn't even going to do lessons because like it's, there's enough here to spur, spur on conversation. I'll just blow through these though. Number one, Satan cannot control a believer's thought life. He can only influence your, the thought life. I didn't finish that sentence. That was this morning, by the way. That's, that's what happens in your last minute. The devil, he made me do that. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Satan cannot control a believer's thought life. He can only influence your thought life. Okay? I'll, I'll return to these Lesson number two, Satan's ultimate goal is the spiritual destruction of every human being. And number three, to have victory over Satan, one must be diligent in prayer, committed to meeting regularly within the community of believers, and faithful in their study and application of scripture. That's how you resist the devil. That's how you fight him. All right, that's how we have a dialogue. <laughs>